You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast. Not going to waste any time this week. I have an action-packed, information-filled episode coming to you with Dave Erig. Now, Dave Erig, um, I'm going to not do him justice with his introduction because he has a fantastic resume when it comes to flintlock muzzleloaders, which for those of you who still have a tag after our gun season is right around the corner the day after Christmas. It's a time of new beginnings and it's a really exciting time and fun time to be in the woods with this more primitive weapon. Now this weapon gets a lot of bad reputation from inexperienced people, inexperienced users. There's been um, cases where people just don't know how to take care of them and properly use them and shoot them and you know one bad experience it ruins it for for them and maybe those around them that you won't even go out and try. And I really encourage you to get out there and enjoy creation and be a woodsman. And this weapon is just another way to get you out and do that. And it is a deadly, accurate weapon if you know what you're doing. So sit back and listen to what Dave has to say. I really think if you're already a muzzleloader hunter, there's things that you can take away from this to make you better. And if you're not a muzzleloader hunter or you're very much a novice, you are going to take and you're going to jump years ahead of those who are trying this on their own. So sit back and listen. I think you're going to enjoy it. This is about, let's see, 75 minus 15. This is my 60th deer season. And it was probably one of the less exciting of all 60. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, man. It happens, too. I've had my ups and downs. Not that I haven't had opportunities, but it's just been it's been interesting. So yeah. in all in all reality, if somebody asked me how I was doing, I'd probably have to say deerless and demoralized. But I'm trying to pick up my morale. <laughs> hey, keep it positive, man. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's why we do this. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about muzzle loading, because uh, there's a lot of guys that are going to be in the same shoes as me. It's right around the corner. And uh, there's a lot of people that don't think about muzzle loading until rifle season ends and it's here and guys got to start to think about getting ready for that season. But, you know, that's, that's why I wanted to have you on and, and chat about this with you because uh, you're somebody that I think thinks about it a little bit more than just at the end of rifle season. Isn't that right? Yes. I think about it every day of the year. There's so they, not one day that goes by that. I'm not thinking about new powders, new loads, new rifles, uh, new tactics, new clothing, uh, you name it. I, I live and breathe muzzleloading. Hmm. Well, Dave, if you don't mind, um, could you just introduce yourself for anybody who doesn't know you? Because, um, you know, a little tidbit of information, uh, you had a lot to do with the Flintlock muzzleloader season here in Pennsylvania. But just, just give an introduction to yourself and talk about your, your fascination with muzzleloaders. Well, way back in 1974, which was the first year of Pennsylvania's special flintlock deer season, uh, myself and a handful of others around the state, like uh, Skip Hamaker in Redding, Dave Motto up in Catawissa, um, Rich and his brother Bob Hoysia over in Nazareth, um, Don Blazer out in Bellwood near Pittsburgh, we all were in touch with each other and excited about having the possibility of uh, celebrating Pennsylvania's rich history by dressing up as long hunters. In other words, guys in buckskins and um, white cloaks and uh, going deer hunting. Uh, Pennsylvania has long been a state where deer hunting has both been economically important as well as culturally. And we wanted to make that, that special heritage a hunt for people to remember. Now, 74 was such a long, long time ago. And here we are in, in uh, 2021. And a lot of those early people are all gone now, but their history remains behind. And uh, I'm getting to that cusp, too. But I'm still <laughs> enjoying every day that comes by. Uh, just to briefly introduce myself, I'm a, a columnist for Pennsylvania Game News in uh, focusing on muzzleloading, uh, both flintlock rifles as well as uh, percussion shotguns and pistols and the like. Um, I've been a, an editor, Southeast editor with Pennsylvania Sports and Magazine. I've written for all the big newspapers in the state and all the big magazines. Um, Right now, I'm currently the editor of Muzzle Blast, which is an 84-page, full-color, monthly hunting and shooting and technology for muzzleloader type of magazine uh, put out by the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. Um, I've held so many titles over the years. I was president of Jacobsburg Historical Society and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, but that's enough about me. Let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk about flintlocking. Well, that's a fantastic resume. Um, and that's why I wanted to have somebody who knows a little bit more 
a little bit more about them than myself. But, you know, I want to take this a little bit of a different approach than most would. Um, I'm going to assume that a lot of the people that are listening to this may have some knowledge of flintlocks because it's been a season since 74. And, you know, there's a lot of people. I You've probably been with people. I've been with people. And I've been one myself where flintlock season comes around and you, you go with some people who just aren't comfortable with their weapon and you've heard the sayings that, you know, they're they're slow to fire or they, they don't always go off or they're not as accurate. And, you know, you're going to dispel some of those things we're going to talk about in detail. But I want to go from the thought that anybody listening to this is going to have that light switch flip and they're going to say, okay, I need to get ready for flintlock season. And in the past, I've just really, really struggled to have a good, successful flintlock season through Leaf Dave, and they're going to try to have a better flintlock season this year. What are some of the things when they get out and break all their equipment out? What are things that they should be definitely doing, having with them at the range, and getting prepared for opening day? Well, the first thing I'd like to caution everybody about is taking that flintlock rifle out for the first time since last year. Uh, way too many guys who weren't successful and didn't shoot their rifles, forgot that it was still loaded. So please, 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 everyone who's listening, take the ramrod out of from under the rifle and the ferrules and put it down the bore. That means that hole in the end of the, the rifle barrel and put it all the way down till it goes funk and then pinch the ramrod at the top by the muzzle, withdraw it, pull it out of the barrel and then lay it alongside or on top of the barrel and see if it reaches down to the touch hole. If it doesn't, that means you still have a load net rifle. And so many times when rifles are inherited or gifted or just plain forgotten about, there's still a load in there and that load will go off. If you make a mistake, like dry firing it mm. or worse, priming it. So let's, let's start with a clean muzzle order. After you fired, or even if it wasn't fired and it, you proved it to be empty, you have to re-clean a clean muzzleloader. This is one of the number one mistakes that guys make in not having a gun that goes off quickly. Because those old oils and greases that are still down in the grooves of the rifling are laying down there, and they're going to slow down the burn of the black powder. Now, let's just briefly talk about black powder because you need to know what's going on there. Black powder is a simple chemical compound. It's not, excuse me, a simple chemical mixture. It's not a compound. All the components are separate. The charcoal, the carbon, the sulfur, and the saltpeter, which we call potassium nitrate. All three of those things have been aligned and, and kind of mushed together under the weight of a rolling mill and a little bit of moisture. That's right, they added water to it, mm. into a cake, and then the cake is dried, and then it's crushed again. And what that's done now is to put the saltpeter around the charcoal carbon fiber, and um, the sulfur is homogenized in there, 
And so when that gun goes off, the carbon is the fuel, the saltpeter is the oxidizer, and that sulfur, which glued those two things together, is really part of the gas that's going to blow that ball or bullet down the barrel. So once you understand that, the next thing you need to understand is this crazy measuring system. When you go to buy black powder, it's sized by F, Mm -hmm. meaning the the screen size, F being the largest of them. And uh, it's basically the size of uh, coarse pepper. And then you go to FFG. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's been crushed and half the size of the F is now considered 2F. That little G on the end just stands for glazed. And what that means is during the milling process, it kind of shines up the particles and makes them flow in the can or the powder horn a little easier when you're loading. Mm -hmm. So if you cut the the 2FG powder, again, that makes 3FG, again, half the size of 2F, but it's proportionally now way smaller than what you started with, the the single FG powder. And then finally, the last grade you're going to see in most places is 4F, which is just priming powder. That stuff is like talcum powder. It's very, very, very very fine. But all of it is black powder. It's all the same stuff. It's charcoal, saltpeter, sulfur. And um, it's much different from anything you find in the big box stores on the shelf. And I'm not going to mention names here because they don't need the advertising, but all these big stores that have guns, black powder guns, powder and bullets only put out powders that are replica powders like triple seven pyrodex, uh, Blackhorn 209, Jim Shockey's gold and on and on and on. Right. Why is that different? Well, back in 1970, I believe it was nine, um, hydrogen powder was messing around with compounds that could replace the terribly fouling and bad smelling black powder. And what they did, instead of using carbon as a fuel, they replaced it with an oxidizer um, that allowed the powder to burn, burn cleaner. But the trouble was it, it left this, basically this, this iron uh, sulfate in the, in the barrel. And um, it turned out to be more powder about 10 years later. And that stuff was much cleaner burning because they, they took the uh, original oxidizer out and replaced it. And basically a sugar powder. <clears throat> The triple seven's a little bit more energetic than normal black powder, about 10% more feet per second per volume load. And so a lot of guys were attracted to that because of the inline rifles. And they thought, well, if it worked good with the inline, it should work great with the flintlock. And that's just not the case. And here's why, Mitch. Mm-hmm. Black powder is going to ignite at about... Uh, 470, 480 degrees Fahrenheit. The replica powders, in order to be the class B explosives that they are, so they can be safely put on a store shelf, they ignite up around 780 degrees Fahrenheit, almost double. So if you try to ignite any of the modern replica powders, you have difficulty in a flintlock. Flintlocks 
work the best with black powder in the bore, black powder in the frizzing. But we've been thrown a curveball this year in 21, besides the uh, the latest virus of choice. Sure. Um, <laughs> we've been thrown a curveball by Hodgson Powder, who in late September announced that they were no longer manufacturing black powder. And that black powder called GoEx, and they had another brand called Old Einsford, mm-hmm. was the only American black powder made in this country. And so there was a deep gasp amongst the muzzle loaders, like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And um, there is an importer of black powder called Petro Explo, and they have a product called Schutzen from Germany mm. and a product called Swiss from obviously Switzerland. And those are both excellent powders. In fact, the Swiss powder is much cleaner burning and more energetic than the Schutzen. Um, it, the Swiss is comparable to the triple seven in energy. The beauty of it is that those black powders still ignite at that very low temperature. So for your listeners out there, please do yourself a favor. Don't start messing around with the replica powders in your flintlock. They're not going to work. They're not going to make you happy. Can you make them work? Yeah. You can mix a little black powder in with the triple seven or the pyrodex in order for it to go off, but it's not going to give you the same accuracy as the black powder load would. So enough about powder. What's the next question? That's, that's great. I mean, you answered the questions that I had about powder within. So you talked about the size of powder and, you know, 4F is, you know, a lot of people know that that's ignition powder. How do you decipher for each rifle and each load whether you should be using 3F or 2F in your gun? Like, how does one go about deciding to make up a load? So we've decided we need to have a clean rifle, and now we're going to go to the bench, and we're going to make a good load for this rifle. And there's so many angles and different things that people will hear in modern muzzle loading, but we're not really getting the big picture when it comes to flintlock muzzle loading. So can you tell me how to make a good load in my rifle? Sure, it's easy. Follow the manufacturer's directions. Now, having said that, that that is kind of a disclaimer, Mitch. When the rifle companies, whether it's Thompson Center or Petersali or whoever, they put a cautionary powder load in there of 2FG powder. Why? Because 2FG powder is slower burning than 3FG powder. Mm-hmm. Okay, why is that important? Well, I'm going to make the analogy with your wood fireplace. If you put kindling in there, that's your 4F powder. That ignites with a match. If you put just splits of wood in there, that's your 2F, and it's not going to burn if you light a match to it. If you take your hatchet or tomahawk and you cut up the splits of wood into finer pieces, well, that's your 3F. Now it's going to burn easier. Now, the problem with faster burning is that you increase breech pressure. That's both good and bad. Breech pressure, which is generally around 13,000 pounds per square inch, is going to pop that ball out of there somewhere between 1,600 and 1,800 feet per second. But here's the thing that I'm saying about good. Um, Even though your manufacturer says use 2FG, powder. They don't say don't use 3F, but 
if you do use 3F in most cases, it's going to give you 10% more velocity per volume of powder, which means you're getting more shots out of a can of powder. And it's also less fouling. The smaller you make the particle size, the less fouling you get. Well, now people are thinking, well, if you went from 2F to 3F and that's good, wouldn't 4F be even better? And the answer is no, definitely not. Because 4F is consumed instantaneously in the breach. And now instead of 13,000 pounds per square inch, you're getting 15, 17,000 pounds per square inch. And it's stressing the steel in the barrel. Just don't do it. The second thing that you need to know is if you're shooting a patched round ball, there's very little resistance to that round ball going down the bore. So you can get away with 3F powder and get that faster velocity and be able to use less powder, less recoil. But if you put a slug in there, now slug is an elongated, essentially a cylinder of lead instead of the ball. And what that does, it, resists the push of the black powder. And now the pressure is being confined down in the breech and it can become excessive with a heavy slug. And what do I describe as a heavy slug? Well, they're all out there, whether they're Barnes bullets or they're maxi ball bullets or they're uh, CBA Powerball bullets, they all are elongated and heavier than volume for volume round balls. So if you're using a slug, I'm not saying not to because they're very good at what they do. They penetrate well. But if you're using a slug, then stay with a 2FG black powder. That's fantastic information. I think there's a lot of people out there um, hunting that want to put a slug down their barrel. And it sounded like you were kind of indifferent as far as you know, I've heard some people that say you have to shoot a patch round ball through a flintlock and others just say, no, no, you can't. Like, what's your take on that? Because I have my own personal opinion on performance in game with a round ball versus a slug. But I mean, why don't you just spew what you think about that, that topic of conversation when it comes to a hunting scenario? Okay. We've got to get a little bit technical here. Every flintlock rifle has a barrel and it is marked with the rate of rotation of its rifling. For those of you unfamiliar with rifling, rifling is where we have scratch grooves on the inside of the barrel and it twists at a specific rate. Many of the early muzzleloaders that were called Hawkins, whether they were produced by um, Dixie Gunworks or Pedersali or Thompson Center or Lyman, Hawkins simply meant it was a plains rifle style where you had a half stock. Those barrels, for the most part, were twisted or given a rate of rifling of one inch and 48 inches of movement. Now, that means the round ball is going to rotate one rotation as it's being shot out the barrel. And at the four foot mark, it's made just only one rotation. Well, how does that compare with a modern rifle? Well, modern rifles like a 3006 are one rotation in 10 inches of barrel. So if you got three feet of barrel, uh, you, you now have 36 rotations of that thing coming out the front. Um, round like a baseball, and I'm going to use an analogy again. If you were to throw from the pitcher's mound, the home plate, 
and you threw the ball without putting rotation on it, it would be a knuckleball. It would be flying all over the place. You couldn't predict where it was going to hit. So the Swiss figured it out very early in history that arrows with fletching that had a twist to it would spin and fly straighter to the target. So it wasn't long until the early gunsmiths figured it out. If you twist the bullet coming out, it's going to shoot more accurately. Now, let's go back to the baseball. You're back on the pitcher's mound, and you're going to throw a fastball. You're going to have just a minor amount of rotation on that ball because if you snap your wrist, it's going to turn into a curveball. I know that because my brother was a major league pitcher mm. <laughs> and Gary would throw an amazing curveball that I just absolutely could not hit, but he, <laughs> he was a big, big lanky guy. He had great arm momentum and he just put a tremendous amount of spin on it. It was unbelievable the way that thing curved in. Um, so that that's the round ball. Don't spin the round ball too much. Now, why am I saying that? Well, if you look at the modern inlines, they're being given a rate of rotation of one inch in 20 or one inch in 24 inches. And that's more than twice the rotation than the round ball can handle. So round balls don't shoot real well out of an inline unless, and here's a little secret, unless you cut back on the powder. And now they're coming out with a slower velocity. They don't have that tremendous rotation going down range. And vice versa. If you have an old Thompson Center Hawking gun, one and forty-eight inch twist, mm-hmm. and you stick a slug down the barrel, and I don't care which one it is, uh, that slug is like a football. And in order to get a football to fly straight, you need to put spiral on it. And that's why Tom Brady is so successful. If you ever watch him snap his wrist, that that ball is just spinning like tremendously and it's just dead center straight as it hits the receiver well that that's where you got to understand slugs need lots of rotation and that's why the inlines have that but when you put a slug in a thompson center hawking with slow rotation the only way you can get them to shoot really well is to speed up in other words I'll put a lot more powder in, which leads to heavier recoil, which leads to people getting gun shy and their accuracy drops off. So it's all about the rifling. If you have a fast twist rifle and some flintlocks are made that way now, and you'll have excellent accuracy with that one in 28 twist. But if you stick the round ball in there, thinking you can go back and forth between slugs and round balls, you're going to be disappointed. You need to understand rate of rotation and the geometry of the bullet. That's fantastic. So we've we've narrowed down a couple things for, you know, Joe Schmo, a flintlock hunter who wants to go out here in a few weeks. So we've talked about a clean rifle. we got to figure out and make sure we've got the correct powder, which you've gone into excellent detail for that. We've talked a little bit about manipulating slug versus a a round ball. Another common conversation in deer camps and you know around the circle after a muzzleloader drive is what grain charge of powder are you shooting? And there's a lot of guys that will talk about why well, shoot this chart uh, pouch, uh, charge of powder 
And I don't think they have any clue how they came up with that number. It's just the number that they came up because maybe somebody told it. And there's there's got to be a little bit more method to madness when you're making that load. So can you at least give me a starting point? Like if I'm going to go on the bench and I'm going to make a load, how do I decide what charge of powder I need to be shooting? Okay. The old rule of thumb is shoot the number of grains that match the caliber size of the bore of the bullet that you're shooting. So if you have a 45 caliber rifle, start out with 45 grains, 3F powder. If you have a 50 caliber rifle, you want to start out with 50 grains, and it could either be 2F or 3F, depending on the type of bullet that you're going to shoot. If you're going to a 54 caliber, now you want to go 55 grains. That's just a starting point. Now, there's this thing called the theory of optimal return. <laughs> mm. Start moving your load five grains at a time and watch the group size of the bullets that you're shooting at 50 yards, not further, 50 yards, shrink. For instance, if you have a 50 caliber rifle, you may start out with 50 grains and you're seeing maybe a three inch group. As you start increasing the number of grains, that three inch group is gonna start shrinking down to two inch and one inch and for the really good shooters out there, you're gonna get sub minute of angle at 50 yards. Now, at that point, and for the most part, history has shown that's usually around 80 grains. If you're at 80 or 85 or 75 grains and you have the tightest group possible, now you have a killer load because you have plenty of velocity. Oh my goodness. If you're shooting 80 grains of powder in a 50 caliber rifle, that has way more energy and way more velocity than a 44 Magnum. Mm. Think, think about that. Dirty Harry's gun is not that dirty compared to a 50 caliber flintlock rifle, but it is a short range gun. And the reason why it's a short range gun, number one, the guys don't know how to shoot open iron sights. They grew up with a scope. They yes. never had to look down that notch and, and the front bead, and they don't have a clue how to make it work. So that's, that's the first reason, because those rifles are easily capable of shooting 200 yards with no problem. But accurately, no. I've, I've watched guys shoot in competition. Most guys can't, especially offhand. Oh, so certainly. 50 yards. That becomes uh, being a master of your weapon. You know, there's a lot of people that say you shouldn't shoot a, a compound bow past 30 yards because it's inaccurate. And the fact of the matter is, it's who is going to be the most accurate with that weapon. Well, now, absolutely. Now, one thing now, you me, said, let me, let go me, ahead. Let me, let me finish giving you what you asked for. Sure. You wanted, you wanted loads that will work for hunting. Okay. If you don't have the time and or can't take the time, I guess I should say, mm. to go to the bench and do this kind of shooting. Um, a good starter load for a 45 caliber is 65 grains of 3F powder. And that's going to kill deer out to 50 yards, no problem. Sure. In fact, it'll kill them further. For 50 caliber, now you can jack it up. And most guys like to shoot heavier loads for deer season. I like to stick around 80 grains. I think that's more than enough. Mm. When you get up to the 54, now you're talking about a big ball of lead coming down the barrel. 
And you have to understand that that sphere of lead doesn't grow at a standard rate. It grows exponentially as you go up in caliber size. And when you get to 54, uh, now you want to stick up there by 90 to 100 grains. Those loads that I just gave you, the 65 for the 45 caliber or 70, if that's what people prefer, the 80 grains for the 50 caliber and the 100 or 90 grains for the 54. <clears throat> Those loads have killed a lot of deer over the years, and I recommend them. Well, that's good to know. So anybody who just heard that, you know, take note and write that down if you're going to go to the range and you're just going to throw a quick load together. But let's keep on this track of somebody that wants to really improve their muzzleloader hunting capabilities this, this winter here. So you had said about shooting groups and shooting on the bench. And I think there's a lot of people that hunt fl with a flintlock muzzleloader and really don't know how to do a good shot sequence, how to keep their weapon firing appropriately, you know, how to clean in between shots. It, can you kind of give me an idea of what somebody should be doing when they're trying to shoot a group, make loads, and keep their weapon that they can load it appropriately without having to jam a ball down and keep it firing consistently while they're on the bench? Okay. When you ignite black powder, you're, you're making carbon sulfate, ammonium sulfate, and a whole bunch of nasty gases in there. And they laminate the barrel with what we call fouling, which is basically carbon sulfate. That fouling is anhydrous, which means it sucks moisture out of the air. And as it turns moist, it, it really becomes ink and can keep the next load from firing, or at least firing with the full energy that it's needed to. The bigger problem, though, is that Fouling becomes a, a form of uh, <clears throat> friction and slows the ball down so that the powder actually burns faster and a dirty barrel actually will shoot higher on paper. You could actually miss a deer simply because of the fouling and you threw that second load down. Mm. I never, I never, never shoot a dirty gun. I learned the hard way. <laughs> You have to have a fouling patch, which is nothing more than a patch in your mouth full of saliva so that you can put it up and down the barrel right after the shot. And that does two things. It gets that carbon sulfate fouling out of the barrel. And more importantly, it extinguishes any carbon that might be sitting in there like charcoal at a, a picnic. You know, charcoal just sits and smolders. It doesn't go out right away. So, and if you throw fresh black powder down the barrel on top of it, you might end up burning your hand because of it. So put a falling patch down between shots. I'm not talking about cleaning a rifle. I'm talking about pushing the fouling to the bottom and pulling the patch out and now load. So After make sure I understood that you're, you're wetting the patch with your mouth and yeah, saliva. Okay. We, we call it spit patch. Okay. Now you had talked about, you know, how, how do you shoot groups? Get yourself a cardboard box, put a V a cut a V notch with your pocket knife in the front of the box and another V notch in the back. And you would be amazed at how steadily 
that will hold on target. And again, no more than 50 yards. Start out at 25 and then work your way out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, same sight picture each time. Some guys can't see the sights because their eyes are old. Hmm. Um, that requires moving the rear sight closer to the front sight. And does that make it inaccurate? No, but it takes a gunsmith usually to do it because most guys are afraid of taking a hacksaw to their <laughs> old tick liquor. <laughs> oh, I'd be one too, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, you must see that front sight. The front sight is the most critical component in shooting open sights. The rear sight basically gives you a vertical alignment and a horizontal alignment. The front sight, um, if it's a primitive gun, needs to be filed down to make the gun shoot higher or lower. And I'm, I'm really going in a place I shouldn't because your, your listeners are probably thinking, what, you're taking a file to it? Right. Let a gunsmith do it. But shoot your three-shot group and then work your rear sight in the direction you want the bullets to go. If you're shooting to the left, move your rear sight to the left. If you're shooting to the right, move your rear sight to the right. And it's going to put you in center. And the center is the most important part. After that, you can adjust your windage because a lot of these guns have uh, adjustable rear sights on them that are spring-loaded. So you just turn the notch screw and it puts it up or down. Fantastic. Uh, for a lot of these tips and hints that I'm giving you, they could, they could buy my book too. <laughs> well, let's put a little tidbit of information. I'll make sure that's in the in the comments section below that everybody can look that everybody can find information for Dave. Yeah, that that would help them a lot. Trust me, I do a lot of public speaking at fishing game clubs and game dinners and that sort of thing. And uh, constantly, when I throw all this information out, people give me that walleye look like. This goes way over their head. Sometimes you just need to see it in print somewhere so it makes sense. Certainly, certainly. So, you know, I I think we got a lot of information to somebody that's got got their wheels turning. They're going to change some things in their gun. They're going to switch and they're making sure they've got the right powder. They're going to take better care of their gun when they go to shoot in the range. You're going to make sure it's a clean gun. Um, they, they've worked the load. They've got everything that they're shooting well on the bench. So now let's let's transition over to keeping ignition. Your, ignition. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Ignition. When I was growing up, I was watching Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone on, on TV, the old black and white TVs. And I would see these guns go boom. And I thought, oh, that is so neat. Well, if your gun is going boom you're not hitting any deer because <laughs> your gun is not igniting in five one hundredths of a second, which is the optimal speed that it should be firing. And that way your sights don't move off target. You should hear a flintlock go bang. It should not be any kaboom to it. And the way you do that is number one, take a pick, which is nothing more than a straightened out paper clip and pick the touch hole. That's that little hole on the side of the barrel where the powder's got to ignite the powder on the inside of the barrel. If you have fouling in there from the previous shot, like when you ran the spit patch up and down the barrel, and it's obstructing that flash channel, the gun's not going to go off. Or if it does, you might get a 
flash in the pan where you get all this fire on the outside and nothing on the inside or a hang fire where eventually it's burned through that obstruction of fouling and sets off the gun and the gun very slowly fires. None of those are good. A flintlock rifle, if it is tuned properly and mostly lubricated properly on the inside of the lock, it should just go bang from the time you touch the trigger. It certainly should. So you touched on that and that's, that was exactly where I wanted to go with. So we, we got all this together and we've gained a lot of confidence on the bench and now we're going to go hunting. So I brought with me, I'm sit, have it sitting near next to me. I brought my muzzleloader bag out and I'm going to go through what's in my muzzleloader bag. And I want, you can grade me, you can add stuff to it. You can say, I don't need stuff. I, I've, I want your full honest opinion. Now, my muzzleloader bag is a is a fanny pack disclaimer. I'm not very authentic, but I have uh, I have here I have a couple of pre-made speed loads. I keep um, extra uh, 2F powder in a medicine jar. I have some cleaning patches and a cleaning jag. I have my priming powder. I have a flathead screwdriver. I have my powder measuring device and a ball starter. I have extra flints. Um, I think I said a flathead screwdriver. And the last thing I carry with me is uh, a little uh, multi-tool pliers. And the one thing that I've added over over time is I usually keep paper towels with me. Um, so from that, and, and I, oh, the last thing I forgot is uh, I have a little kit to, you know, clean my, clean my touch hole. It has a, has a brush and a pick and everything like that. So that's, what's in my muzzleloader bag. So hearing all that, are those all the things that should be in a muzzleloader bag or what are some things that stand out to you that maybe I'm missing or, or maybe don't need, or, or what are your thoughts there? Well, it sounds like you're ready for an overnight hunt. You've got a lot of stuff going on there in the bag. If you have your quick loads already loaded up, there's no need to carry extra powder. Um, I, I would be concerned about a, an extra flint and a leather that goes around the flint in the jaws of the cock. Mm. Um, you need something brass in there, uh, whether it's a, a little tiny, teeny tiny brass hammer or uh, just a, like a, a brass rod but you need something brass because you need to, what I say, dress or uh, put a sharper edge on your flint. Um, If you're using flints, which are naturally occurring stones made of silicone, not silicone, silica, um, they get dull each time they hit the flint. And after several shots, you may get inconsistent sparking going on in that flintlock. If you were to hit that flint with a steel rod, like from a screwdriver or or a steel hammer or something like that, it might result in spalling, which is what you want. You want little chips coming off the edge to be sharp, like a a broken piece of glass. But steel will also throw sparks down into the pan of your gun. And that's not good, particularly if your gun is loaded, because now you got a problem where it's going to go off when you didn't intend for that to happen. Uh, some guys use a flint tool, 
which is nothing more than a little notch in a piece of flat metal that you can just put on the front of the, the flint and carefully just lift up. And again, that will cause spalling or chipping of the flint and make it sharp so that it gives you good hot sparks. Sparks are important because if you don't have a shower of sparks and a shower I describe as something seven or more sparks, and I know what you're thinking, how in the heck am I going to find out if there's seven sparks with a clean gun? Okay. One that's unloaded in the dark, turn it upside down, hold it above your head, squeeze the trigger and count the number of little fireflies that come dancing down to earth. And believe me, you'll be able to count them. Mm. Seven is like the number that I always like to have as a minimum for setting black powder off. That's And if you don't, you got to go ahead and do something with that flint or else replace it. Okay. Now, if you're using one of the modern flints, the kind that you find in the big box stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they call them German flints. Sometimes they call them, um, oh gosh, the black ones. Um, is, is an ingot? Synth- synthetic. Flint. Yeah, synthetic, okay. Yeah. They cannot be sharpened. Those edges, once they're dull, you throw them away. And that's why a lot of guys who have been hunting with flintlocks for years and years won't touch them. They always make sure they have good English or French flints. French are amber colored. The English are kind of grayish, darkish, but not black, but dark gray. They can be napped. The synthetics cannot. Also, the synthetics are very hard on the frizzen. That's the steel thing above the lock that the flint smacks into. And those synthetic flints just make a groove halfway down the frizzens and eventually you've got to put the frizzen on a grinder and then uh, re-anneal it and harden it to make it spark again, which is a painful process. It's not something most people are capable of doing or even have the tools to do. I know I don't. (laughs) There you go. Stick with the English flint. Good to know. Good to know. So, on to a hunting situation. So mm-hmm. had a lot of situations I've been with a group of fellows that, you know, maybe somebody takes a shot at a deer or, you know, a coyote or whatever they have. And, uh, you finish the drive and, and you go to set another one up and they go to shoot at something that in the next drive and click gun doesn't go off. And a lot of the time it's wet powder or what happens. So we touched, we did talk about the shot sequence a little bit, but First of all, are you doing anything differently in your shot-to-shot sequence while you're hunting? Or what are some things that you commonly find people are missing in that reload sequence while they're hunting? Okay. As I pointed out to you, make sure they're running a fouling patch down the barrel after each shot. And then reload immediately and pick the touch hole. But as far as priming the piece, I don't think they should be walking around in the woods with a primed rifle. Wait till they're one of the standards and then prime and shoot at the deer, but not 
walking around with a fully loaded flintlock, particularly if they forget themselves and put it at full cock and then have an accidental mm. discharge. Mm. So uh, I've, I've heard people using a trick like this, and maybe this is hogwash. Uh, I'd, I'd love your opinion. Um, after they fire a shot using something absorptive like a a piece of cloth or or toilet paper or something and putting that in the the closed position to absorb moisture as that's you're going through your reload shot is that a little bit excessive or is that a good idea um cloth doesn't do anything neither does paper when when you put that following patch down that the danger of course is it's pushing following into the flash channel, the touch hole that has to be cleared with a pin, either a paper clip or a fancy iron piece that's made just for the job. But as far as the pan pans will get wet because when black powder burns, I told you it's anhydrous, it sucks moisture out of the air. And now you can use your cloth to rub out that black powder out of the pan and you'll have a good dry pan for when you prime. Mm -hmm. If you don't, yes, then there's the danger of getting dampness in the priming powder. I like to change my priming powder often. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we have a very wet environment in which to hunt in late December and January, whether it's frozen like snow or more times than not sweat from a, a hot walk in a deer hunt mm -hmm. or drizzle or snow laying on the boughs of a hemlock tree that drizzled down into it. So I like to <clears throat> keep that pan clean and put a cow's knee, which is nothing more than a piece of leather over top of the entire lock so that nothing can fall down into it. And that way, when I'm ready to prime and fire, everything's dry in there. The other thing I like to do, if I'm one of the guys who's a driver, I'll carry my lock underneath my right armpit. Obviously, I have a hunting coat on, and it's, it's going to be warm and dry. And that warmth really speeds up the ignition of the priming powder when you throw it in there. Uh, it's just like your fingers. If they're cold and numb, they don't move so quick. But if they're in your pocket with a hand warmer, they function much better. Well, rifles the same way. If you can keep it warm and dry, you're far better off. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. <clears throat> so we've got a lot of people that have heard this, and hopefully they're going to change some things that they were doing wrong over the past few years with their hunting. Now, I want to shift gears here for just a second, and if there's people that are listening to this and it's getting them excited and they want to join in on the fun because it is a lot of fun. It's, it's a close second to archery hunting for me. And I know it's, it's your eat, sleep and breathe. So if somebody, you know, is going to go out and buy a rifle, there's a lot of great rifles out there. And, and I always say, pick uh, the rifle picks you, you don't pick the rifle. Now for some Perfect. reason yeah. for ripe for muzzle loaders, it seems that people like to, ease in, go cheap, and buy a used rifle or 
something that's just not of as much quality. And I'm, I'm focusing more on used rifles. What is your opinion on somebody getting a used rifle? And is there anything specifically they should look at when they buy a flintlock compared to buying a used modern rifle? Two things, the lock and the barrel. The lock being the component on the side of the gun that ignites flint and steel to make spark and you, your priming powder goes off to fire the gun. Take the lock and test the spring tension just by pulling back the hammer. If it's not much resistance at all, that means that the mainspring on the inside of the lock needs to be replaced or retensioned. And a, a gunsmith can do that for you, but I would never buy a gun that has a weak mainspring. Also, modern flintlocks have a little piece of metal on the inside of the tumbler called a detente or fly that covers up the notch so that at half cock, the, the cock with the flint in its jaws is going to stop at a safe position so the gun doesn't go off. You can pull the trigger all you want. It's not going to fire. But when you pull it all the way back to full cock, now that detente has to move inside the tumbler to allow the sear to engage the notch on the tumbler and be at the firing position. If that doesn't happen, if it doesn't cock properly, if it doesn't have tension on the cock as you're pulling it back, and if it lets forward and it stops halfway in between, it doesn't go through the full cycle of firing forward, you got a problem with that gun. And unless you're willing to take the time and the money, go to a competent gunsmith to get it figured out, um, stay away from that. The second th piece that I talked about was the barrel. Um, barrels today are good modern steel, and they should give you at least at least 10,000 shots. Most guys who hunt with these guns are never gonna get close to 10,000 shots. So barrels never really wear out unless they were not maintained. And by that, I mean that they weren't cleaned properly. <clears throat> if you don't have a bore light with you, one of those little lights that you can turn on and stick down the barrel so you can see the rifling, just take a piece of patch along with you, a cotton patch, and on the jag, the end of the cleaning rod, start putting it down the barrel. And if it starts scratching, don't go any further. You don't want that barrel. That means there's rust in there. And it's because that gun either shot something like Pyrodex, which has a perchlorate chemical in it. It just eats steel like you can't believe. Hmm. Or the barrel got wet or they got tired when they came home and then forgot about it for a couple of days and the barrels started rusting on them. Now, barrels can be saved. They can <clears throat> go to gunsmith and the gunsmith can lap them out, make sure that rifling is going to work again. But if you're buying a used gun, it should work. It should have a good clean barrel. It should have a good lock on it. The stock is just, you know, the eye of the beholder. Hmm. doesn't matter whether it's a synthetic stock or a curly maple. It's, you know, what do you want to pay for this thing? The prettier the stock, the higher the price. As far as sights are concerned, 
sites can be replaced. If you don't like the sites that are on there, put something else on it. A lot of guys have gone to ghost rings, which is actually an aperture site that you put on the back receiver. Uh, that's not a big deal. As far as trigger pull is concerned, again, a lot of these like Hawkins style rifles have a set screw that can lessen or increase the trigger tension that it needs to make the gun go off. So it's the lock and the barrel that are the primary important pieces to look for. Excellent. So you touched on it just in, in your used segment. And one of the kind of the, one of the final things I really wanted to talk about, and it's probably one of the most important things that I don't think it's done properly all the time is cleaning. Now we talked mm -hmm. about we talked about that a little bit, but I want to know what is the proper way to clean your flintlock, and I is is there a difference in cleaning it after a range session versus after one shot fired during during the hunting season, or does that stay constant? Okay, this, this is going to knock your socks on. <laughs> Well, I'm when, ready. The socks are on to come off. <laughs> when cleaning a black powder gun, you're dealing with an anhydrous fouling. That means it can absorb moisture right out of the air. It must be cleaned. If you're hunting, all you got to do is run that spitch patch up and down and keep on hunting, put the next load in, go. But at the end of the day, you've got to get that fouled barrel clean, which means discharging the gun or using a ramrod to pull the ball or the bullet out of there. And then you got to clean it religiously, not with what you've heard. I bet you've heard of guys using hot detergent water, haven't you? I have. Oh, my God. That is the worst thing you can do to an iron barrel. And I'll, I'll explain why. It sounds good when you're cleaning your hands, like, like sink. I put a little detergent on mine and clean them up, get the grease off and everything. But when you put hot detergent water down a barrel, you're doing two things. Number one, you're opening up the pores, which didn't have any fouling in them. And now as you're running the ramrod and the cleaning patch up and down, you're squishing fouling into the pores. The detergent pulls all of the oil and grease out of that iron, which means you stripped it naked. And now when the gun's clean, after you dry the bore with some clean patches, you basically have a perfect scenario for rust to take place. The best thing you can do with a black powder arm is use the polar solvent. You remember that from chemistry class? Mm -hmm. Water. Water. The polar solvent will dissolve every mineral, every bit of sulfur, every bit of ammonium, every bit of uh, other gases that are inside of there. They're all in my book, by the way. And... Because it's cold, you don't open up the pores. You leave the oil that you originally had in that iron there to protect the barrel. So now basically what you're doing is you're flushing the barrel. You're not really cleaning. You're flushing. Remember, black powder is 
not a compound. It's not, not some chemical doodad that you got to dissolve. It's simply a mixture. It's like salt and pepper. If you threw salt and pepper down the barrel and you suck water down and flushed it out, it's still salt and pepper after you dry out the water. Mm. And that's the way black powder is too. Now, after you flush the barrel, obviously you want to dry it and then you want to hit it with a good grease, not an oil because oil sublimates. That means that it just evaporates off the iron on the inside. Whereas a grease being a larger molecule, it's going to hang onto the iron. It doesn't bond with it. It just adheres to it. And that's what you want in there. You want that in adhering grease to maintain that bore. So that next time you load it, remember you're going to put a cleaning patch down before you load it, get the grease out of there. But now you have a perfectly smooth iron or steel barrel to work with. Concerning the outside, do they need to take the barrel out of the stock? Well, if it's a Hawkins style rifle, it's easy to do. You punch out one key in the forearm and you just lift it up and you can stick it in a bucket of water and wash it that way, which is very convenient. Mm -hmm. If you have a long rifle, do you know what a Pennsylvania long rifle is? Absolutely. Okay. Now you have pins in that long piece of wood, you know, that 40 some inches of wood all the way up to the muzzle of the barrel. And if you're popping pins in and out and in and out and in and out, mechanically you're wearing them out. And you're also wearing out the little hole in the tenon, tenon underneath the barrel that tightens the thing to the stock. So there I would not pull that barrel, but at the end of the hunting season, when I give it a, a thorough house cleaning. So you're using just water down the barrel. Just water. And that is hot water, cold water, doesn't matter? Hot water opens the pores and lets the fouling get into the pores. Okay. And when you're doing that, are you doing that with just a jag and a cleaning patch? Or are you running a brush down at this point? Um, some guys like a copper brush. But if you're not shooting bullets, which are copper jacketed, there's no reason to do that. If all you're doing is shooting a cloth patch around a round ball, grease patch, it, it's not necessary. But if it makes you happy, it's not going to hurt anything. <laughs> right. Right. Um, oh, I had a thought there and it just escaped me. <clears throat> oh, okay. If, if you're at a hunting camp and you've been out and it's rained during the day, now you need to do a complete cleaning of the lock, pulling the lock out of the stock, cleaning the barrel channel, cleaning out the lock mortise, cleaning the barrel, both inside and out. And here's where your hot water could come in. If you pour the hot water down the barrel just to get it warmed up, to get the moisture out of it, that's fine, but don't overdo it. It doesn't take much to make that barrel hot. No, right. And then and then dry it out thoroughly and hit it with the grease. So when you say a grease, is there any certain grease or, or product that you're biased to that you like better than the others? Like what are some oh, things sure, that are what are I some sure things am. that 
that are like, <laughs> yes, this is good for the barrel. And there's things that are absolutely not. This does not belong in your barrel. All right. Do you like your money? Do I like my money? Absolutely. I'm not made of it. And so do I. The best grease in the world is a vegetable grease. And we bake cookies with it. And it's cheap. Good old Crisco. You could use lard if you want to. Or if you shot a bear, a bear is really good. Bear grease. Absolutely it but, is. But, but buying expensive tubes of grease is ridiculous. Because a lot of times those tubes of grease smell of wintergreen. And wintergreen is very nasty on iron. It actually causes rusting. Hmm. Interesting. So, so the, the fancy... So make it, e make it easy on yourself. Vegetable grease. So the fancy boar butters and such that we find on the market are okay, but really not necessary. Correct. Hmm. Dave, we've really talked about a lot of different things here, and it's probably going to be overwhelming to somebody. Um, what things, as a novice as myself, what things am I forgetting that really should be something somebody should hear as we're approaching muzzleloader season? It's pretty simple. Get your gun up, make sure it's dry and unloaded. Go ahead and load with powder patch and ball or powder and your Sabo bullet. And then make sure you open up the touch hole, prime it, and go kill a deer. <laughs> Just that simple. Just that simple. And all the things that we talked about and that, that whole process, what's some of the questions you get asked the most and like the thing that people fail to be successful on? Is there something in particular? Is there a lot of different things? Uh, it really boils down to strategy in the late season. Uh, deer have been so stressed by human interaction mm. that they basically have gone to security areas that you could say aren't hunted. But the reason that they're not hunted is because they're thickets. And usually the best place to find these thickets is in low wetlands. It could be a swamp. It could be a lake, a pond, a river, a stream. But you will always find deer near water. They need water as much as you and I do. You and I could only last two days without water. And the deer is the same way. So even if they run across a cornfield and away from you, trust me, they'll be back to the water within a day or two. Also, deer need to get out of the wind. In a late season, there's not a whole lot of good food out there. I'm talking about high-calorie soybeans and corn and, and acorns and that sort of thing. Because there's not good food out there, they have to conserve their energy. And they can't afford to waste it on just running around. So deer find what I, I call calorie-conserving areas, and that's basically thick areas where the underbrush, the spice bush and the, the rhododendrons and the like are going to stop the wind. The deer are secure because they can't be seen in these thickets. They have their water right there. So basically they're in survival mode and that's where they are. They are not going to be roaming around looking for breeding. They're not going to be roaming around looking for high calorie food. So what good is a tree stand? It's not any good at all in the late season. 
And the same thing with guys doing drives through open hardwoods. The deer aren't in the open hardwoods. They're in these lowlands, these thickets, these watersheds. And if you find deer, you're going to find out in the late season, they really don't want to run away if you don't make threatening gestures, which means you can get mighty close to a deer in the flintlock season. And always always remember the eyeballs. If you see a bright, shiny eyeball looking at you, you're under 50 yards to that animal. Go ahead and shoot, no matter what caliber gun you have. If you see an eyeball that's dark, but you can't tell that it's glassy or glossy looking, it's probably around 75 yards. And there you ought to have probably at least a 50 caliber flintlock. And if you see a deer's head and all you see is that white patch of fur around her eye, but you don't really see the eye, yeah, deer's out 100 yards to 125 yards. You may want to think about getting a little closer because if you give a deer a chance to make a mistake, they usually do. They're not that smart. <laughs> we sometimes think they are. Mm. We tell our buddies how smart they are, but they're not. They're predictable. And they're they're predictable based on what their needs are. And we just discussed what those needs are. But in the late season in particular, they need to get out of the wind and they need water. That's fantastic information for anybody. Last question I'm going to leave you with, Dave, is what is the rifle that you gravitate to and you're probably going to use the most this year? A Pennsylvania long rifle that I call Alt Blitzen. It means old lightning. <laughs> Why does it mean that? Because I carved it. I engraved it into the top barrel flat one day because I was bored. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was using that, that gun since the 70s, and I've killed a lot of bucks and does with it. So it's just been always very kind to me. Now, do you only take the flintlock regardless of the firearm season? Is that your, your go-to choice regardless? You mean if I had my choice, yes, I don't usually get my choice because a lot of the hunts that I go on, I'm either out there because the manufacturer's taking me out on a junket or I have an article that's due for some magazine and they have a particular gun that they want me to use. And my life is not my own is what I'm saying. Mm. I'll pick it up. So if somebody really was interested in this and they want to hear more from you, they want to get more information on you or your book or anything like that, where can somebody look, look you up and, and find some of this information, Dave? Uh, two really good places. One, as they told you, I'm editor of Muzzle Blast magazine. That's, that's a fantastic magazine, not because I'm editor. I'm far from it because I'm editor. Um, it's just the amount of technical information in there and good hunting stories and the like. It's 84 pages, like I said, monthly. There's no magazine out there that competes with it when it comes to the muzzleloading culture. And that can be gotten at www.nmlra, which stands for National Muzzleloading Rifle Association.org. That is the first place I would start. Second place I'd go to is my book is titled Muzzleloading for Deer in Turkey put out by Stackpole Publishing, and it can be found on Amazon. And it's both a digital version as well as printed. Got to have that in this day and age for sure. 
Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Dave, I cannot thank you enough for the time that you shared with us and this wealth of knowledge. Um, it's it's as much important to me as it is anybody who listens to this. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're most welcome, Mitchell. I hope you have a wonderful flintlock season. And if there's anything I can do to repay the favor, by all means, reach out. Who knows? Maybe someday our paths will cross. I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I have a feeling they will. I, I hope so. <laughs> well, Dave, have a wonderful evening and you take care.